Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, let me pray, and uh, we've got a big section to cover, so let me pray that God will help us as we listen. Well, Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would help me to speak clearly uh, and us all to listen clearly to your word so that we might give you the glory you deserve. This we ask in Jesus, your Son. Amen. Well, uh, this, this is my uh, penultimate sermon. It's quite sad, actually, to think that this is uh, one of two last sermons uh, with you. It's been such a joy to open the Scriptures with you uh, each week. Uh, so it's all very sad to think that these are some of the, the last words I get to share with you uh, from the Scriptures. But on the other hand, because I'm going, I can say what I want. <laughs> Uh, I joked with Kev the other day that for my last sermon, I was going to wear my favorite pair of shorts uh, because I wear these pair of board shorts that every time I wear them, I wear them to staff meetings just to stir Phil and uh, they're kind of like they've got flowers on them and they're pastel colors and every time I wear them, Phil just loves to say to everyone else in the staff team, oh, Mike wore his pajamas to staff again today. So I said to Kev, maybe for my last sermon, I'll wear them just to, uh, just to stir up Phil because what can he do? Is he, he going to sack me? What's he going to do? Uh, so bear with me today if I'm a bit bold, because, you know, I'm leaving anyway. But, uh, but this, this section of Acts, it's, it's one of those passages that, that really does just strip away the fluff. It, it strips away the fluff to make some bold points, uh, to make clear what is central to the plans and purposes of God and of His church. Uh, I love this part of Acts. Uh, to put simply, what is central is the proclaiming and teaching of the message about Jesus. And I know for, for most of you here, I'm, I'm telling you nothing new at this point. That's not a radical statement to your ears. Yes, we prioritize Jesus, but that is under pressure. More and more, there is growing persistent pressure not to prioritize above all else the proclaiming and teaching about Jesus. And it comes from outside the church. We, we know this well. So, you know, often, yes, it's fine to say that, uh, that I believe in Jesus. People are happy for us to believe in Jesus if we want. Uh, and our society says, yes, it, it's fine for you to believe in Jesus because that makes you kind and generous in our society. If you're living out the ways of Jesus, then you should be kind and generous. Our society loves that. That's all okay. But, but don't proclaim Jesus to me. And certainly don't teach Jesus to me is what those outside the church say. But it's not just outside, it's also inside pressure from inside the Christian church that is growing. Uh, as someone who preaches about Jesus week to week, the pressure I feel to preach and teach something other than Jesus as Lord and King comes much more from inside the Christian church than it does from outside. That might change, but the pressure as a preacher comes from inside. You see, many Christians, they want their church leaders to preach on social issues. They want their, their Christian leaders to, treat, to, to teach about environmental issues or political matters. Some Christians want their teachers to, to preach week in and week out about how they could be a better parent or a better husband or a better wife or, or a better person in their workplace. And all those sorts of topics, they have a real place in the teaching of our church. They're not wrong in and of themselves necessarily. But as a preacher, I can tell you the pressure can be, yes, yes, we, we know Jesus is Lord and we know he's king, but can we hear about something else, please? The pressure can be, yes, yes, we know Jesus, uh, the, the, the Bible's all about Jesus and we love to preach through the Bible, but, but can we hear something else, please? That's the pressure. Now, let me say up front, the people of Snack at this church, 
love hearing about Jesus. That's why I love this church. That's why I'm going to find it very hard in a few weeks' time to have my last Sunday here, because I love this church. But given this is my penultimate sermon, and given I feel free to be a little bit bold, I want to say, as strongly as I can, do not change. Don't change. Don't succumb to the pressure, because it's growing. And if you have drifted away from Jesus as central to all things, then come back. See, we as the church of God are to desire above all else to grow in our love and knowledge of Jesus. And that's why I love this part of Acts. Because the apostles here, they're very clear, come what may, and we'll see this, come outside pressure from outside the church or inside pressure from the people of the church itself, the priority must always be the message about Jesus. So let's jump in, Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up, and then Dave will bring you a Bible because you'll need it. And I just want to remind you where we're up to uh, in the book of Acts. Remember, there's, there's a movement in the book from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So if you look up on the screen, there's a little image there to help visualize it. We're still very much in the red hot center at the moment, uh, right in the middle. These early chapters are about the message spreading about Jesus through Jerusalem itself. That's where we're up to. But because of that, there's this great rift that's beginning to happen amongst the Jewish community. Because some Jews, they're persuaded that Jesus is God's King and Messiah, but other Jews, not so much. And that causes this great tension, or should I say, this great jealousy from the old Jewish religion towards the new Jesus followers. And this is point one in your outline, the jealousy of the old religion. So pick it up with me from your Bibles, verse 17. So Acts chapter 5 from verse 17. And at this point, Jesus' apostles, they've been out doing their thing and teaching about Jesus. And verse 17, as they've been teaching, then the high priest took action. He and all his colleagues, those who belonged to the party of Sadducees, were filled with jealousy and they arrested the apostles and put them in the city jail. And at this point, it's all very familiar. Uh, We saw this with Peter and John back in chapter 4. Remember, they got arrested as well. But this time, it seems all of the apostles are being arrested. And look at what happens next. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, but an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night and brought them, the apostles, out and said, go and stand in the temple complex and tell the people all about this life. That is all about the life of Jesus and the life he offers. And like I suspect any of us would do if an angel kind of popped up and we were in jail and magically opened the door supernaturally, we would, like verse 21, do like the apostles. In obedience to this, verse 21 they entered, they entered the temple complex at daybreak and began to teach. And so very quickly into this section, the, the, the priority for the apostles is clear. What are they to do? They're to teach about Jesus. And it's really interesting what the angel says, because if you look back at the section from last week, just, just scan your eyes over verses 12 to 16, that just before our passage today, In verses 12 to 16, the apostles, they were doing some pretty incredible things. Uh, People were being miraculously healed. Lives were being changed. But the angel doesn't say to the apostles, go and stand in the temple so that more people can be healed, so that more miraculous things can be done. No, no, the angel says, go and teach. Teach about Jesus. 
Teach about that name that will bring true healing and eternal life, not just healing for the now. But what happens next uh, are some of the most uh, comical verses, I think, in all the Bible. And imagine it like this, uh, remembering that this actually happened. We've got, to, we've got to remember that as we read this. It's not like, hey, this is a cool story put together. This happened, right? It's, and it's almost comical. So just imagine like this. There are the powers that be, the old religious guard, and they, they put the apostles in prison, and they're thinking, great, good. You know, they're locked up. We, we, we've stopped them for now. We're going to stop them permanently, but at least we've stopped them teaching for now. They're locked up. And then the next day comes along in verse 21. Look at verse 21. The full senate of the sons of Israel convened. That's, that's the Sanhedrin court. And the way it reads is as if every member of the court is there, is present. So it's not one of those you know, normal monthly meetings of the court where you know, motion after motion is, is passed and there's the monotonous, all those in favor, I. No, no, this is a juicy meeting. Everyone's turned up to the court because we're going to deal with those Jesus followers today. Everyone's turned up. So everyone's there, everyone's ready. And verse 22, have a look at verse 22, that the temple police, they go off to fetch those pesky followers of Jesus from the prison. And when they get there, everything is as it should be. Who's outside the prison door? The prison guards. Good. What about the prison doors themselves? They're locked. Good. And they open them. And then there's no one inside. See, everyone is ready except for the apostles themselves. And you can just, again, this, this happened, right? Imagine the commotion. The temple police probably started abusing the guards. What are you guys, idiots? How did they get out? They didn't get out. We've been here the whole time. How did they get out? And then imagine the temple police going back to the whole Sanhedrin. Everyone's assembled today. No doubt they got verbally abused for their incompetence. And Luke, I think, purposely puts it quite humorously in verse 24. Look how he records it. Verse 24, they were baffled. Just, you know, can hear his humor. But to make matters worse, then you get verse 25. So look at verse 25. Amidst all the head scratching, verse 25, someone came to the court and reported to them, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple complex and teaching the people. Again, just imagine how the court would have felt at this point. They just can't get rid of these guys. They just can't stop them. It's like that, you know, those weeds in your backyard. If you remember the weeds that come through summer, especially over summer, you pull them out, and what happens next week? The weed's back. And then you get the spray, and you spray it. Sometimes the whole container of poison, you, you know, you put it over this one little patch. A week later, the weed's back. That's like these guys. They keep coming back. And instead of the court thinking, why are they so persistent? Instead of thinking, why is all this supernatural stuff happening in the name of this guy, Jesus? Maybe there's something to this. Maybe, just perhaps, per chance, Jesus might be the Messiah. Instead of thinking that, what do they do? They go and arrest them again. And how did that go the last two times? And aren't they cowards, the Sanhedrin, the court, as they do that? See, verse 26, without force, they go and they bring them to the court. Without force, because they're afraid that people might stone them, because everyone knows something supernatural has been happening in the name of Jesus. Which tells us even how humbly the apostles must have conducted themselves, which I think is a little lesson for us. You see, the, the, the apostles, as they were getting arrested, they could have stirred up the crowd. And the crowds would have stoned those temple police. 
But the apostles didn't do that. They went quietly. But now we get the, the, the scene in the courtroom, which is point two on your outlines. The apostles before the court again. And like I said earlier, we've seen this before. This is, this is a repeat of Acts chapter 4. And it's fascinating what the court says. See, look at verse 28. Look at what they say to the apostles. They say, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to bring this man's blood on us. And obviously, uh, the, the apostles completely ignored what they told them last time. Yes, we heard your command, but we don't care. We're not going to listen to you. But it's the second comment about Jesus' blood, which is fascinating. Because remember Mark, uh, uh, Matthew's gospel we did last year leading up to Easter? Do you, do you remember what the crowd had said to Pilate in Matthew's gospel? Pilate had said to the people, I'm innocent of this man's blood. You, you know, his blood be on your head. You're the ones who want to kill him. And what did the crowd say? That the, and the crowd would have been made up of the men of this court, the Sanhedrin. What did the crowd say back to Pilate? They said, yes, his blood is on us. And radically, they said, his blood is on us and our children. But now, only a couple of months later, in their cowardice, they, you know, they want to wipe their hands clean. You know, you're trying to blame us for this man's blood. We didn't do it. Yes, you did. You know you did it. But Peter and the apostles, they answer the court exactly like they did in chapter 4. Look at verse 29. And again, we've seen this before. Verse 29, Peter and the apostles replied to the court, We must obey God rather than men. In other words, I told you last time, command us all you want. You are but men. We listen to God. And then Peter goes on to proclaim all that God has done in Jesus, his son, which we, we can't look at now, uh, but it's very rich and it's actually central to this passage, but we dealt with it back in Acts chapter 4. So make sure if you missed uh, the sermon on Acts chapter 4, go back and listen to it because they're rich verses. But what I want us to notice is the outside pressure that Peter and the apostles would have felt not to teach about Jesus. And we, we need to just get ourselves into the story for a moment and just feel the intensity of the scene. Even what we've heard so far, the people wanted to stone those temple police. They, these are different days. They're not like our day today. The, the, the world operated in a different way. We need to feel the intensity of the scene. There is high emotion here. Look at verse 33. Look at verse 33. When they, the court, heard Peter's words, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. It's no light kind of momentary reaction. They wanted to kill them. The apostles here, they were under huge amounts of pressure not to speak. But they did. And for us today, the outside pressure is not as intense as that. And I hope it won't be in our time, but it might be. We don't know. But that outside pressure, it's there. And it's real. And, and it forces us to ask ourselves, when we are under that sort of outside pressure, what will we do? What will you do? Will we obey God? Or will we give up towards the fear of men? And sure, we're not like the apostles here. We haven't had some angel turn up and command us to go and teach publicly about Jesus. We're not exactly like the apostles here. They, they were called to obey by a messenger of God. But we are called to obey Jesus' words. And what does Jesus say to us? He says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, that is of all that Jesus teaches, and he's a son of God, so all the Bible is a teaching of Jesus, 
Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. So do we prioritize that message of Jesus? Do we give in to men rather than obey God? You see, we must not give in to any outside pressure that commands us not to speak the truth about Jesus. The pressure will always be there. It has always been there. And we are to obey God rather than men. We're actually to trust God and fear him rather than men. Uh, Some of you might know the story of John Bunyan. Uh, He's the one who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, if you've ever heard about that book. And uh, he lived at a time in England when the Church of England, as a formal body, was doing a pretty horrid job of prioritizing the preaching of Jesus. Uh, It was mostly a false church at that time, quite sadly, in 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 the 1600s. And so John Bunyan, he would go around proclaiming Jesus publicly uh, outside of the official Church of England body, so not in their churches because he wasn't allowed. Uh, And as he went teaching publicly about Jesus, that was illegal in that time. You couldn't go in the street and just preach about Jesus. It was illegal. And so uh, John Bunyan was brought before the court to give account, uh, to confess whether he was doing these things and to be warned to do it no more. And as he stood before the judge being called to account and being warned, John Bunyan said this to the court. It's up on the screen. He said, It is no secret that I preach the word of God whenever, wherever, and to whomever God pleases to grant me opportunity to do so. I have no choice but to acknowledge my awareness of the law, that is, you're not allowed to preach publicly about Jesus, which I am accused of transgressing. Likewise, I have no choice but to confess my guilt in my transgression of it. And he goes on to say, as true as these things are, I must affirm that I neither regret breaking the law nor repent of having broken it. Further, I must warn you that I have no intention in the future of conforming to it. I cannot place my signature upon any document in which I promise henceforth not to preach. You see, there is a believer who obeys God rather than men who trusts and fears God rather than men. And it's nice to read that and go, oh, that's nice. They're crying at pretty words, aren't they? Nice sentiment. Uh, Do you know what happened to John Bunyan? Do you know what the court uh, warned him of if he held his line? That he'd get put in jail. And he was put in jail for the next 12 years of his life. Spoke those words directly after 12 years of jail. Not an easy thing. So the outside pressure not to speak of Jesus has always been there and it will always be there. But thankfully for the apostles, uh, the pressure at this point subsides for them. At least for now, next week will be a different story. We'll hear about Stephen from, uh, from Dave. Uh, so it changes next week. But the reason it subsides is because of a man named Gamaliel. Um, not to be confused with Gargamel, if you remember the Smurfs. I always think of Gargamel. Or Les Stumpf. Who, who, a couple of French speakers in our congregation now. It's Belgium. Is that right? It's Belgium. Belgic? Belgic? Yeah. Uh, now, Gamaliel, he, he's both a wise man and a foolish man. Uh, he, he's a foolish man because like the rest of the court, instead of seeing what's going on and all the supernatural stuff happening in the name of Jesus and putting his pride aside and his power aside and considering Jesus as Messiah, he doesn't bother. The evidence is all there, but he doesn't do anything about it. But he's a wise man because he reasons logically with the court. Uh, He he reminds him of these two former men who attracted great followings, one named uh, Theodos and the other Judas. 
And both those men who attracted great following came to nothing. And all their followers came to nothing. And so Gamaliel, he tells the court this. Look at verse 38. It's very reasonable, very logical. Verse 38, he says, Now I tell you, the court, stay away from these men, these apostles, and leave them alone. For if this plan or if this work is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. And we know from the rest of the book of Acts and from the last 2,000 years and from the very fact that you and I are here today reading this story from Acts and hearing this history about Jesus, that the, the message the, the apostles spoke is from God. They couldn't stop it. Whatever is of God will never be overthrown. Never, ultimately. It's the eternal purposes of God. That's why we're here. But just to go back to John Bunyan for a moment... See, after Bunyan spoke his words to the court, Judge uh, Wingate then said this uh, to John Bunyan. Look up on the screen. He said this after the words we read before. He said, Very well, Mr. Bunyan, you leave us no choice but to commit you to Bedford Jail. If you manage to survive, I should think that your experience will correct your thinking. If you fail to survive, that will be unfortunate. But in any event, I strongly suspect that we have heard the last we shall ever hear from Mr. John Bunyan. And it's a very ironic statement, uh, and really in the purposes of God, because do you know what John Bunyan did during his 12 years in prison? He wrote. He wrote a couple of books, and one of the ones he wrote, uh, almost in full, was his most famous, The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, and The Pilgrim's Progress, by 1938, had 1,300 uh, re-editions from that point alone, uh, almost 100 years ago. It already had 1,300 uh, new editions it's one of the most published books in the English language and it's encouraged countless of thousands, perhaps millions of Christians to stick with Jesus. And John Bunyan did that while he was in prison. And we know the name of John Bunyan only because of his time in prison and the way God has used that. You see, you cannot stop the work of God. So let that encourage you to be on the side of God whenever outside pressure comes, like it did for the apostles and John Bunyan, stick with God. That's the winning side. Speak the truth of Jesus, even if it means imprisonment. Even if, like it did for the apostles here, it meant physical suffering. So what happens in verse 39 and 40, if you have a quick look, it's almost, again, comical if it wasn't real. So end of verse 39, have a look, the court, they're, they're persuaded by Gamaliel to leave these men alone. Okay, good, we'll leave them alone, we're persuaded by you. Beginning of verse 40, they call them in and have them flogged anyway. We'll leave them alone, but let, let us flog them first. And the flogging there was probably 40 lashes less one, which was the standard punishment. Physical suffering. And just in case we're under any doubt of the priority of the apostles on whom the church is founded and grew... After being flogged, no doubt with the scars still probably seeping from their backs, and clearly have been commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus, what do they do? Look at verse 42. What do they do? Verse 42. Every day in the temple complex and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. You see, you can't miss what is at the center of God's church as it spreads and grows. It was and remains the truth of Jesus as God's King and Messiah. But very quickly, I know it's a bit long this morning, so stick with me. The last little bit, because I think it's, it's, I don't want us to skip this bit because it's important. 
going to look at the last little bit. Uh, because even in the very early days of God's church, it wasn't just that outside pressure that threatened the proclaiming of Jesus. It was also inside pressure from the church. And we won't read it in full, but in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 6, there, uh, the, the apostles, or Luke as he records for us, he raises a very serious issue in the early church, the beginning of chapter 6. So if you have a look, there was this dispute that arose between the Hellenistic believers and the Hebraic believers, and it was about daily distribution, uh, so basic needs for, for the widows, so uh, vulnerable persons. And it sounds like the Hebraic wid- widows, uh, those of the Jews, were being provided for over the Hellenistic ones, the Greek ones. Uh, so there was a preference. And so this is an issue of race. Greek and Jew, it's racial. And it's, it's an issue to do with vulnerable people. These are widowed women who in that day depended largely upon others. And it was an issue of equality and an issue of justice. All those sorts of issues that are still with us today. Race, gender, equality. And this would have been a high emotions, high emotions issue for the church because some were Jews and some were Greek background. And it would have been very emotional, again, like these issues are today. And so in verse 2, the whole company of disciples get gathered together because this is a big deal and needs to be resolved. But what I've just described, that is not the serious issue that's raised. This is really important to get right. Do you know what the serious issue is in the early church at this point? Look again at verse 2. Look at chapter, chapter 6, verse 2. The 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples to deal with this issue. But what's the issue? They said it would not be right for us to give up preaching about God to handle financial matters. So do you see what the issue is as far as the apostles are concerned? It's the risk of the preaching about God being given up for the sake of other issues in the church. And please, please, please do not mishear or misquote me on this. The issues of the widows and the daily distribution to them is significant. The apostles do something about it. They go on and appoint seven to take care of that really important need. This is not the apostles dismissing other significant things. That's not a fair reading of what's happening here. But what you cannot miss is that the serious issue is the risk of the preaching about God being given up. So if on that day the apostles got caught up and distracted with the particular affairs of the church at the neglect of the priority of the preaching about Jesus, the church would have ceased to grow. And not just grow in number, but in maturity. And the book of Acts would have ended at this point because the preaching stops, so therefore the spread of the church stops, and you and I would not be here. And we would not know about Jesus. Because it's only because of verse 4 that the apostles devoted themselves, verse 4, to prayer and to the preaching ministry that the church of God went forth. Because that's how the church of God grows. And if you think I'm overstating it, look at verse 7. Look at verse 7, the last bit of our passage. The apostles, they appoint the seven. The, the important issue of the widows gets taken care of because it is important. And in verse 7, because that's been dealt with, so now the preaching about God flourished. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem multiplied greatly. Even a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. You can't miss the point. God makes it clear in this passage Proclaim and teach about Jesus. That is central to the church of God. And so I want to finish with some quick uh, applications for us, all under the heading, let's get the priorities straight. 
Like I said at the beginning, I'm going to be a bit bold today, so please uh, be patient with me. Uh, I love this church, I really do, because the vast majority of you are on about proclaiming and teaching Jesus. Because I see you teach Jesus to each other, I see you work at proclaiming Jesus to other people, even though it's hard, and I know that you support Phil and I as we make Jesus the centre of our teaching and preaching. So I want to say, don't change. Keep going. Continue to encourage Phil and the other preachers as they preach Jesus to you. Uh, Continue to encourage Avril and Jana as they make Jesus the centre of their ministries. Because the truth is, the pressure from outside and inside the church is growing and you will be tempted to change. And you will be called all sorts of names if you don't change. Some people outside of our church here from other churches call our names our church names, because we're on about Jesus so much. But what saddens me the most is that the pressure from inside the church is growing more and more. See, people don't want preachers like Phil or me to keep preaching about Jesus. They want us to tackle issues of race. And they want us to tackle issues from the pulpit around domestic violence and indigenous matters and issues of equality and gender And they are serious things. Don't mishear me. They are serious things that do require our prayer and our thought, but never at the expense of preaching about Jesus. And the modern-day gospel has become a very middle-class, therapeutic gospel. Do you know what a lot of people want the preachers to preach on? They want preachers and teachers to be counsellors. They want the Avril's and the Janas to meet regularly with people to help counsel them, to make their lives better, to help them flourish as a person to give them self-help tips. I can tell you as a leader in the church, in the Christian church, there are innumerable pressures and at times innumerable voices wanting the leadership of the church to be on about other things more than Jesus. But we're not a medical centre. We're not a political movement. We're not a self-help conference. Those things have their place, but that's not the church. See, from the moment God formed his church around Jesus, his son, he declared to his church, be on about Jesus. That's what we hear. That's what we see here in Acts. And not only is the leadership of the church to be on about Jesus, but it's everyone together in the church that's to be on about Jesus. Individually, each of you are to be on about Jesus. Collectively, we're to free up the leaders of the church to be on about Jesus. So what are we to do? Well, as an individual, I think you should test yourself. Think back through your week, over the last month or months, over the last year, and ask yourself, am I on about Jesus? Is that what I'm on about? Do I speak of him? Do I think on him? Do I pray to him? Or have I drifted from him? Am I on about something else that might be important still, but something else that has now taken the place of Jesus? It's a really easy self-audit to do. And as a collective, as a church, we'd ask ourselves, am I supporting the leaders in my church to make the proclaiming and teachers about Jesus our whole church priority? So when needs in the church arise, important needs, and there's always lots of them, serious needs, like that of caring for widows, as we see here in Acts, do do, do you go and do something about it? Do I go and send an email not to my pastor with well-meaning intentions and making it his problem instead, but actually seeking to help others in the church 
to, 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 to get together and rally together to help people so that the church leaders can get on with teaching. Which I must say, as a pastor in our church here, is something I think we do very well. I love it when I hear of some practical care that's needed for a church member, and as soon as I've heard, there's already a group together that are doing something about it. It's a beautiful picture of the church. God made us as a body. See, pray for your leaders. Pray that they'd be on about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we are the church of God that as a priority proclaims and teaches about Jesus. And it's what I love about this church. So don't change. And be no doubt the only reason the church here has grown, and if you've been here for about 20 years, you know this was a very tiny church 20 years ago. The reason it has grown, no doubt, is because over the last 20 years, the work of God has been through the priority of the preaching and teaching about Jesus. And that's why we've grown, and that's why so many people love Jesus more and more. And praise God for that. Amen.